A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The idea of a ball four came to me after my first year in the minor leagues. I came back with all these funny stories about what a crazy life it was. And I said to my parents, I said, boy, somebody ought to write a book about this. I would spend all day long with a notepad in my pocket. I would fill it with notes, and sometimes I would fill almost a whole book with one day if it was a really good day. But then I'd run out of notepaper, and I would write on whatever was available. If I was on an airplane, I'd write on an air sickness bag. If I was uh, in the bullpen, I'd write on a popcorn box, peanut bags, uh, airline tickets. I mean, I was constantly writing. I was a writing maniac. When an excerpt of Boughton's book appeared in Look Magazine, the response was decidedly negative. The sports writers started writing these columns. Dick Young devoted like four consecutive columns in a row to what a terrible thing this was, these locker room secrets. The owners were furious. Bowie Kuhn, who was the commissioner of baseball, comes out and tries to have the book banned, which is ridiculous. All it got was people wanting to read it. Bowie Kuhn uh, called me in for a reprimand. He wanted to stop the presses. He wanted to keep this book from being published. He didn't want anybody to read it. It was bad judgment on his part that there are worse things that were sacrificing that ought to stay among the players and the managers and coaches. And it just wasn't good form, good idea, good stuff. It was a bad thing to do. It was embarrassing. Ball Four quickly sold 50,000 hardcover copies, climbing the New York Times bestseller list. But in Major League locker rooms, Bouton was dead meat. Do you know what the Yankee ballplayers did? They took Bouton's uniform, they threw it into the toilet and defecated on it. Did you ever hear that story? What you hear here, what you see here, let it stay here when you leave here. Well, Bouton made the egregious sin of not leaving it in the clubhouse and taking it out and writing about it. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's do this, everybody. How are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this, of course, is Good Seats Still Available. It's the curious podcast that we do each and every week, uh, despite uh, all the odds against it, uh, as we try to explore what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming by, and uh, we appreciate you uh, finding us, dialing us up, putting us in your earbuds, uh, perhaps maybe during a little uh, daily stroll outside to get some fresh air. Uh, Perhaps uh, you are uh, just bored to tears as you hunker down yourselves in your homes and your uh, places of domicile. Maybe uh, you're uh, on a brief uh, car ride to uh, the grocery store or whatever else to get some supplies. Whatever it is you're doing, hopefully, to keep safe and healthy, uh, we uh, appreciate you uh, allowing us to perhaps be a little bit of distraction and some background in the midst of uh, just a a world turned upside down. Uh, We we hear you. We appreciate all your kind uh, words. Uh, we've uh, been overwhelmed, frankly, by our uh, the notes of uh, of gratitude and uh, just uh, people coming out of the woodwork, frankly, 
saying thank you or, uh, you know, at a boy and, uh, you know, thanks for this episode or that. And, uh, we, you know, we greatly appreciate those, uh, those comments. Of course, you can always keep sending those to uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com or visit the website and, and, and enjoy perhaps maybe for the first time, if you're new to the proceedings, all of our great episodes that we've done so far, this is number, Jesus, this is 161 of these episodes. I don't believe it. It's, it's been a journey for sure. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's been great. We greatly appreciate your enthusiasm for it. And uh, we're going to continue to do it uh, as best as we can, despite uh, all the circumstances. But regardless of uh, the frivolity in front of you uh, in this week and all of our various episodes, we uh, we encourage you to keep uh, your eyes on the prize. And that is, of course, your health, your safety. And of course, by listening to your uh, local authorities to uh, ensure that you're doing what you should and frankly shouldn't be doing. Uh, make sure that uh, you follow all the rules and uh, and hang in there. Uh, we're in for a long journey, and um, uh, nobody enjoys it uh, for sure. Uh, but whatever you're doing to stay safe and healthy. And look, uh, if you're a first responder or you're out there in the sort of world of mandatoriness uh, because of your employer or what you do, uh, of course, a double uh, thanks to you uh, for all that you're doing to uh, keep everybody else uh, on the uh, straight and narrow. This week, we are uh, if we can't play it, if we can't see it and watch it, we at least can talk about it. And that's baseball, of course. Uh, we should be in the midst of the uh, the earliest uh, weeks of the uh, of the season. Of course, we're not. Uh, we'll see uh, what the rest of the uh, the spring and summer hold to see if we actually get some real baseball this year. But uh, at least we can uh, maybe go back a little bit into truly what used to be in uh, in this case professional baseball. Uh, and as you heard in that clip. Our guest this week, Mitch Nathanson, is going to take us back to the life and times of perhaps one of the more colorful modern characters in baseball history. His name was Jim Bouton, and uh, who we sadly lost about nine months ago at the uh, the ripe old age of 80. A tremendous and interesting and maybe curious and uh, largely unknown kind of story about the life and times of I, I you know, wouldn't call him sort of the all-time all-star in baseball playing history, of course, uh, but you cannot deny Jim Bouton's role in the modern history of baseball, of course, not only for his playing days as the, with the New York Yankees, uh, quite the pitching phenom and an all-star for a season or two, the comebacks, of course, uh, plural, uh, both in the minor and the major leagues with the Atlanta Braves near the end of his career. But of course, that big, and for us, we love, of course, the excuse for the show, uh, his one year or almost one year with the one year only team known as the Seattle Pilots in 1969. And we've gotten to uh, that story a little bit in some previous episodes. But uh, everybody, of course, will remember the exclamation point that uh, Jim Bouton was absolutely remembered for, uh, revered by some, reviled by others. Of course, that was the 1970 publication of the explosive book, uh, Ball Four. Of course, uh, a, a still to this day, uh, seminal uh, a, and outstanding book in baseball history, uh, co-written uh, and uh, edited by uh, his pal. We'll get into this conversation, uh, part of the conversation in a few minutes. Uh, Leonard Schechter, uh, he a, a newspaper writer who became friends with Jim uh, during the course of uh, Bouton's uh, Yankee uh, days. Uh, and frankly, his outspokenness, uh, he was uh, quite approachable uh, to the press corps at the time. And and for various uh, reasons, Ball Four was uh, almost sort of the revelation, I guess, not only to uh, the populace at large uh, about sort of the 
I guess the inner workings are these sort of forbidden truths, I guess, of being a professional baseball player and all the all the craziness sort of around that. Uh, Jim Bouton's uh, writings and his uh, diary keeping was, uh, you know, was uh, a breath of fresh air or or just, a, a, you know, just an explosion of uh, of things that uh, people weren't uh, really knowing about baseball or talking about. And and I guess on a smaller level or a more micro level, uh, it uh, kind of birthed, I guess, sort of a renaissance of sports writing uh, because it kind of gave license, this book did, and uh, the excerpts from it and the uh, the subsequent revisions and follow-ups to it, updates to it, uh, really was sort of a, a kind of a blueprint, frankly, and maybe an opening of gates to a little bit more of a straightforward and, and personable and, and frankly, more detailed and, uh, uh, you know, underneath the surface kind of uh, writing style uh, that during the 1960s cer- certainly wasn't uh, the case in baseball. You could make the argument that a lot of baseball reporting at the time was still quite reverential, especially when it comes to uh, the New York Yankees at, at the time, right? The sort of hallowed ground, I guess, and the the heroes and the uh, the, just the the legendary figures uh, that uh, walked uh, the, the hallways and uh, traverse the greens of, uh, of Yankee Stadium and, and, frankly, baseball generally. Jim Bouton kind of blew all that up. And um, we sort of get into not only that, which is certainly a big part of the story, but his year at the Seattle Pilots, how he got there in the first place, his uh, career with the Yankees and, and, and the minors prior to that, uh, the minors after that, uh, the minors after leaving the uh, Seattle Pilots, going to Houston and, um, and then coming back, actually, in the minors as well as the majors. And frankly, just more generally, I, I, you know, uh, they you, you could call Jim Bouton uh, kind of the uh, I guess the sports world's uh, deceptive revolutionary. But as we get into our conversation with Mitch Nathanson in a few moments, uh, I'm not too sure that uh, people uh, would sort of uh, confuse Jim with a revolutionary. I mean, I, certainly those meeting him on the street or or whatever. Uh, you know, this is a guy who created and loved all kinds of things around baseball, including Something that's near and dear to my heart when I was a kid playing baseball and other sports, and that's Big League Chew. I didn't even know until I read this book, uh, Silly Me, that uh, Big League Chew, yeah, that sort of, I guess you'd call it sort of like chewable uh, bubble gum that was sort of the t- guy emulating that of uh, of chewing tobacco, right? But uh, much more safe, of course. You know, just uh, kind of ground up like, uh, like it looked like, uh, it didn't really look like, it was pink, of course, you know, chewable tobacco, but it was chewable bubble gum. Uh, you know, that was uh, created by Jim Bouton sort of as a uh, a way for kids to kind of, you know, experience a little bit of what it's like to kind of dip into a pouch, not of tobacco, but a bubble gum and kind of, you know, maybe uh, sort of align themselves and, and maybe aspirationally feel like they were playing at the pro level during their little league game. And, and I think that was kind of sort of the I, it's kind of hard to sort of put it. I wouldn't put it impish. I wouldn't put it, you know, a little bit of a, a, a curious kind of personality, maybe a, a tad bit whimsical, perhaps a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, devilishness, uh, but sort of in a good and and uh, uh, maybe uh, fun loving kind of way. Uh, Jim Bouton was absolutely, as we'll hear in this conversation, a, a lover of the game of baseball and his contributions to it certainly in the ball four and in the literary world, certainly memorable, but in a whole bunch of other facets as well. And he was a darn good player, too, uh, on a number of occasions, certainly as he was coming up through the Yankees franchise and had some moments certainly there, too. But we get into all of that, the life and times of Jim Bouton with the uh, 
the author of the book of of Jim Bouton, and frankly, I think now the uh, the quintessential biography. It's called Bouton: The Life of a Baseball Original, and it is written by our guest Mitch Nathanson. Uh, coming up in a couple of moments. This is a, a tremendous conversation. Truly, I learned a lot and um, a, a bit unexpected in terms of uh, of what one learns about uh, uh, a baseball figure in. Jim Bouton, uh, certainly one to remember and one for the ages. We get to it in just a moment. Uh, but before we do so, of course, we want to say uh, hello and welcome, of course, to one of our great sponsors. And this week, we spin the dial of intrigue and it lands on our friends in beautiful Portland, Oregon. It's 503 Sports. Yes, the king of throwbacks. Our pal Dustin Alameda uh, pulling it out there for us all at 503 Sports. And of course, the website is 503-sports.com. And a great way this week uh, to celebrate uh, the Seattle Pilots, the life of Jim Bouton, uh, by going to 503-sports.com and uh, dialing up uh, one of three great Seattle Pilots offerings. There is, uh, of course, uh, T-shirts. There are two of them. One is sort of the baby blue Pilots T-shirt uh, with the original Seattle Pilots logo. That's very smart looking for sure. Uh, there is the red premium T-shirt version uh, of the Pilots. It has uh, the logo and it's got the uh, Seattle Pilots uh, insignia there, but it's in red, uh, which is sort of the third color of the original Seattle Pilots logo. So that's also very smart looking. And perhaps maybe the smartest looking of all is the beautifully handcrafted, custom made, 1969 Seattle Pilots jersey, uh, which uh, bears the uh, official 503 Sports logo for uh, authenticity's sake. And uh, you can get your number and your name uh, on the back of it. Uh, it's fantastic. And it's a, a truly a one of a kind item. All of those and many, many more items in and around the realm of sports and throwbacks of such can be found at 503-sports.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you there, and that's the promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S. Spell it and use it often. SEATS, it's the promo code for 10% off all of your purchases at 503 Sports. And of course, again, that website is 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS, and that uh, will ensure that you get 10% off everything you buy uh, at uh, the king of throwbacks, 503 Sports. Thank you to Dustin. Uh, for uh, your continued sponsorship of the show. Thank you, listeners, for checking out 503 Sports and hopefully may perhaps make it a purchase. And thank you, of course, to everybody listening right now as we get into our conversation about the life and the legacy of Jim Bouton, a baseball pioneer on many different levels. Here's our conversation with Mitch Nathanson coming right up. Please, as always, enjoy. The whole zeitgeist of this silly little show has been sort of uh, the excuse is to revolve around revolves around stories relating to either directly or indirectly or or frankly squinting really hard uh, about teams and leagues uh, somehow evaporated and no longer with us, whether they be relocations or defunctness or uh, glimmers in people's eyes and never sort of came about, whatever. We're, we're sort of interested, I don't want to call it the folly, but sort of that that used to be. And of course, you know, in the in the history of of uh, of Jim Bouton, right? Uh, who, frankly, was somebody when we thought about this show four or five years ago. Obviously, it was a, getting a little too late in 
uh, in Jim's life and, and his uh, deteriorating health and all that. Um, he would have been a perfect guest and we would have loved to have gone deep with him on especially his Seattle Pilots experience. But there's a lot more to the guy than just the Seattle Pilots thing. So we'll, I, I suspect we'll get to that, of course. But before we do, how about a little background on you uh, and why your interest in uh, the story of Jim Bouton uh, and and perhaps a little bit into the story of, of the, how, the how and why you got into it in detail. So I, I had written a book about Dick Allen um, a few years ago, uh, and I didn't know much about Dick Allen and learned that he was just this amazing iconoclast. And I found him fascinating. <laughs> the next person I thought of was Jim Bowden. Um, you know, when you want to one-up your game from Dick Allen, there's not too many places you can go. Um, Jim Bowden might be the only guy <laughs> that, that is more of an iconoclast than Dick Allen, in baseball at least. And, um, and, and so that's, that naturally popped into my head. Although I have to say that I had, I had had Jim Bowden on my radar for many years. I, uh, I had written something about him well, about 20 years ago, and I met him, and I, I wanted to do something on him. But, you know, at that point, he was, you know, he, he's a writer. So his response was always, well, why do I need you? Um, and then um, eventually, um, you know, after he had his, uh, his health issues, write much anymore and he was more willing to to talk so that's kind of how that came about well okay well what, what's with the iconoclastic uh, sort of attraction in the first place whether it be messer allen messers allen or Bouton, for that matter the, the what is the the intrigue i guess uh, i'm gonna guess it's because their stories tend to be a bit more colorful maybe than the sort of plain vanilla sports hero yeah so so when when you when i looked at a guy like um like Alan, for example, uh, the thing that intrigued me about it. Now, remember, I, I, I hadn't grown up with Dick Allen, his prime. I remember Dick Allen from the 70s. And, and so when he came back to the Phillies in 75, I, as a kid, I just remember people were so polarized on this guy. And I didn't know much about him. And I just I, didn't, I wanted to know, well, why are people so polarized? And I just found that interesting. I don't know why I found that interesting. I just found it interesting that people were so had such strong opinions on both sides. And so that's how I got into that. And Bouton's the same way. I mean, Bouton is a guy who many people to this day have very strong feelings about. Um, you know, Ball Four is not the um, scandalous book today that it was 50 years ago. But people still um, have strong feelings about what, what he did and, and whether he should have done it and, and then other things in his life that people either rubbed people the wrong way or they thought it was just really cool. And I guess I'm just attracted to people who really bring out strong emotions on both sides. I, I'm not really that interested in pure heroes and I'm not interested in pure villains. I, I like the people who are somewhere, you know, in the middle, and and people are staking out their claims one on one side or the other. Okay, but you're not you're not a sports writer uh, by trade, right? I mean, that's not your this is not your day job, no. No, it's not my day job. So I teach at Villanova Law School. I teach writing, um, and I also um, I'm in their uh, sports law center, and so. This kind of, you know, this sort of writing kind of, it's not exactly, it's not an exact match, but it's, it's, 
it's not that far off. And, and so um, it, it's, it sort of hits a spot that's not quite down the, it's not quite down the center of the plate, I would say, but it, it might hit the black. Uh, and so still a strike. And so, you know, as a, as a professor, there's, there's a scholarship aspect to my job. Um, there's teaching, service, and scholarship. And so the scholarship area, which I really found interesting, was this. Um, and and that's, 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 that's how that got started. I, I also write more, um, uh, I write articles that have more of a legal bent to them as well. Uh, but the older I get, the more I'm drawn to this stuff rather than that stuff. Well, okay. So, I mean, I, the, the whole Jim Bouton kind of story, right, um, uh, is intriguing on a number of different levels. But I think a lot of people, frankly, like myself, although I, I didn't realize until I read your read your book that he actually lived in, for a couple of years, in a town that I grew up right next door to, Ridgewood, New Jersey. I'm a native of a town called Hohokus, which is right next door. I didn't, I didn't know that he was in Ridgewood for a couple of years, but... It's it, uh, among many other sort of pieces of of interesting information about sort of this life story. Um, maybe before we sort of get into, I guess the the ball four sort of era, the Seattle Pilots as being sort of the, I guess the uh, the jumping off point for 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 the the, uh, the putting that book idea at least in his head together. Maybe a little bit of background about sort of Bouton as a kid becoming a baseball player and. Uh, interestingly, right, uh, right out of the bat, essentially uh, playing his first number of years, uh, uh, quite notably with the New York Yankees, literally in the shadow of his, where at least he was, yeah, he you know was born and, and initially raised. So yeah, so so Bouton was always a fan, and that's the thing that's really interesting about him. A lot of professional athletes are not fans; um, they just have to be really good at what they do, uh, and so. I think that for a lot of athletes, there's there's a disconnect between them and the people who watch the games because the people who watch the games love the games. And I'm not so sure that m- many professional athletes really love what they do just for what they do. They're really good at it. And, of course, if you're really good at something, you you, you tend to have an affinity for it. But with Bowden, it was the other way around. Bowden was a fan, and he wasn't that good. That's the thing. He wasn't. He wasn't great. Um, he was not the star of his um, uh, high school team. He sat on the bench most of the time. Uh, he he just really loved it, and I think that's that's the thing that sets him apart. That he he was a fan. He always was a fan. I think at one point, I think he said, uh, you know, he, he's the first fan to actually ever take the field as a player. He was. A, a person who loved baseball, um, but he, he wasn't, he was never a star. And, and so I think he comes at the game or he came at the game very differently than a lot of other professional athletes came to it. And he never lost it. I mean, maybe there were other players who maybe they weren't great when they were younger, but they eventually became great and, and their per- perceptions changed. Batten's perception never changed. He always had this, this 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 kind of boyish love for the game and it never left him and and so i think that is why there are so many people who forget ball four who loved him as a yankee before ball four uh because he just i think when you if you were a yankee fan in the 60s and you looked down on the field mickey mantle who was still there at the time I mean, he's a god 
you you might admire Mickey Mantle, but you you couldn't see yourself as Mickey Mantle. But if you saw Jim Bouton, you see a guy who looks like he's given 180% out there, his hat flies off on every pitch. You could say to yourself, you know what, if I was going to be on the Major League field, I'd look like that guy. The, the guy who's just huffing and puffing and just giving it his all just to, just to stay out there. And, and that's the attraction. How does he even get on the Yankees' radar, right? Because he's, to your, to your point earlier, he's not standing out per se as a high school player. He, he, he's got a partial scholarship uh, at, at Western Michigan to play baseball there. Um, how does he even get on the radar of a team that, you know, at the time was, you know, clearly in one of its many, you know, eras of, uh, you know, amazingness and, and titled, uh, you know, runs uh, in the Yankees? If it wasn't for American Legion baseball, I don't think he would ever have been in, in the major leagues. He had, when he couldn't play for his high school team, he played for a Legion team. This is in Chicago Heights when his family moved to um, Indiana, Homewood, Indiana. And um, he, he played in, uh, Legion ball in Chicago Heights. He was able to play Legion ball only because all of the players or most of the players on his high school team didn't play Legion ball. And so he, he, he could take the field and actually play, whereas he was sitting for most of his high school career. Uh, he, he eventually ended up playing for a coach who was a part-time scout for the Yankees. Uh, and, um, and as a matter of fact, the, um, the, the team that he played on was called the Chicago Yankees. This is the, his Legion team. And they used to wear old Yankee uniforms. They had a, the Yankees had a, there wasn't really an affiliation, but they, this guy had some sort of, um, relationship with, with the Yankees. And he had, they, they, now this is a year before everybody was, uh, um, stamping the uniforms and selling them on eBay. The, the Yankees and all teams just handed their uniforms down, you know, all the way down the line from one year to the next. And so they had a bunch of old uniforms and they, they threw some at this coach. And so this team would take the field in old Yankee uniforms. In fact, this coach used to wear full, uh, an old Phil Rizzuto uniform. And um, when, on that Legion team, um, Bouton really started to shine. And, and so it was the connection. So he was pitching well and the coach was a part-time scout who was looking to become a full-time scout. Uh, and he's the one who got Bouton on the Yankees radar. And so that's how he ends up with the Yankees. He signs, he signs for, you could call it a $30,000 bonus, but when you break down the numbers, it's not much of a bonus at all. Uh, most of that money was going to be paid to Bowden should he make the major leagues, which, of course, most players don't. Um, so it really wasn't much of a bonus, although I guess he could go home and tell his friends he got a $30,000 bonus. Uh, but that's how he ends up with the Yankees. Uh, after um, playing the Legion ball, and then he went to Western Michigan. And by the way, at Western Michigan, he only played the JV team. He never played on the varsity. Uh, um, he played there for a year, and then after a year, he signed with the Yankees for that bonus, and then he started off in Class D, uh, in class D ball. Uh, his father um, sent out a bunch of letters to teams to, to, to get them interested uh, in, in his son. Most of those teams passed. Uh, a few teams had some mild interest. Uh, the Yankees had some interest only because of the relationship with this coach. Uh, and so that's how he ends up signing with the Yankees, um, which is you know, in itself pretty unlikely, I think.
Did you talk to Art Stewart? The uh, uh, it was still with us, by the way. Uh, I guess related to the now the Kansas City Royals, uh, the guy I guess credited with uh, making Bouton that offer to sort of join the Yankee organization. Did you get a chance to talk to Stewart? Yes, I did. What, what did he? What was his recollection of how and why Bouton got on his radar and why he made the move to bring him in? He 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 was great, by the way. Um, yeah, he's ninety something at this point, and he's sharp as a tack. Uh, and um, and he, um, well, he was the coach. He was the coach, the the um, the, the Legion coach, um, and he was the one who wanted the job, the full time job for the Yankees. It was because he signed Bowden that he was then he ended up becoming a full time scout. Um, for the Yankees, and then, as you say, he ended up with the Royals uh, and uh, had had an incredible career. Signed a lot of guys. Uh, he he, Bouton was this guy who who didn't throw hard, and then all of a sudden started to throw hard. Uh, and, and so that was the thing with Bouton. You know, he he picked. He talks about this in Ball Four about learning the knuckleball off the back of the Wheaties box. That's because he was pretty small and he couldn't throw hard, but. In high school, he he grew a little bit, and he could all of a sudden really throw hard, and that's what got him signed. It was not anything other than the fact that this kid had some real raw power. He had a he had a big overhand curve, and and a good fastball, and at least for a few years he had those things, and that's what got him signed. And that's that's the thing that Stewart presented to the Yankees, and that's what intrigued them, and that's how he ended up signing with them. And what does that what does that entail? Because this is what this is nineteen fifty nine, right? And and Bouton didn't get his first sort of a, a cup of coffee with the Yankees up upstairs until sixty two or so, right? So what was his minor league trajectory, and and how was he? I don't know, distinguishing himself, standing out, not standing out. I, maybe you're alluding to some of it. It sounds like he's getting a little bit of. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe he's growing into the pitching role uh, physically, uh, maybe control-wise, or some of the, the the mechanics are finally coming together. Perhaps that uh, that eluded him earlier in his career. Yeah, he he threw hard, but he was really wild. Um, it, it, he had a lot of wild pitches. He would hit batters, uh, not on purpose, but he just he had a lot of trouble controlling uh, anything that came uh, came out of his right arm. Uh, but he he had power. He was a power pitcher, um, and and so he he was not a he was not a, a standout prospect. Um, I, what really changed him was when he met Johnny Sane um, in spring training one year. And Bowden has always been a tinkerer. Um, and I talk in the book about he comes from a family of tinkerers, inventors, and things like that. And he would always he always had a different pitch. Uh, he was working on a knuckleball. He was working on a palm ball. All sorts of pitches. Um, and Johnny Sane, who was the pitching coach for the Yankees at the time, saw him in spring training and and took him aside and took an interest in him and said, you know, you 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 got a couple of good pitches here, but you're throwing too many different types of pitches. You ought to go down, and I think he was going to Amarillo that year. He says, you ought to go down there and work on two pitches. And if you can get a fastball and a curveball over, you can make the team. Um, but you're not going to make the team with five different pitches, uh, you know, which none of which you can control or master. That's what changed him. And, and when he... Um, he he's really started focusing on his two pitches, his fastball and his curveball. That's when um, he, he started to put things together. And as I said, that was really, 
you know, Art Stewart got him to the Yankees organization, but it was Johnny Sane who got him to the Yankees. Um, without those two guys, he, he's, you know, he, he's still in Homewood, Indiana, I think. So he he comes up during the 62 season, right, which just happened to be yet another Yankees World Series championship season. He made the team out of spring training in 62. So, so what happened what happened was, was Casey Stengel had a um, – he started this um, in, instructional school that um, he would have for um, – before spring training. He, he, he would have this kind of a pre-spring training camp for prospects um, of all levels in the Yankees farm system. He got inv- – Bouton got invited to that in 62, and he just dazzled everybody. And it was because he stood out in in that. Um, now Stengel's gone by '62, but um, that instructional school is still there. And so Bouton dazzled in there. He ends up sticking around for spring training, regular big league spring training, which he was not supposed to do. And he pitched well in regular spring training. And then he made the team um, coming out of uh, spring training. He didn't pitch a lot in the beginning of the year, so. Um, it might not have seemed as if he made the team out of spring training because he really didn't pitch a lot until he gets involved in, a, in a, an extra inning game and, and there's nobody else left and he pitches several innings. I think it gets, it gets Detroit, I think. Um, and then he starts opening some eyes. Well, I, I guess I'm really curious as to sort of when, you know, when does he start to kind of get his, um, I don't know, his credibility as being uh, someone who can not only make the team but stick and then even further then stand out Obviously, I wasn't around at the time, and I, you know, a nominal Yankee fan growing up as a kid, uh, and certainly aware of uh, of Jim Bouton. Actually, more for his television work at WCBS Channel Two in New York as a sportscaster for some time in the seventies and eighties. But the, I guess, how much of a quote unquote sure thing was he? It didn't feel like he was, based on my reading of of your book and and other research, that he was not. He was necessarily going to be. Uh, let's say an all-star in 1963 for god's sakes yeah not not at all i mean he was a he was a 500 pitcher in 62 you know he was kind of up and down he would you know he'd start he i he 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 started out in the bullpen he got a start he threw a shutout in his first which he talks about in ball four um his first start he was he was terrific but then his next start he wasn't so good he was kind of up and down they the yankees win the world series um in uh in 62 or um and he doesn't uh he doesn't play at all in that world series uh and so um you know he's not he he certainly isn't a sure thing in sixty two i mean he's on the staff, but you know he's not going to get into a world series game it's sixty three like you say when he he has a he just has a breakout year and um it's a transitional time for the Yankees because the old guard is starting to get old and the new guys are coming in and so there's 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 some openings there's some possibilities. Um, to play, whereas maybe a couple of years earlier there weren't, and so um, he got a chance to pitch regularly, and he he dominated, and that that's that's how he broke out. Yeah, and a bunch of World Series too, right? Not sixty two, but sixty three. I mean, he had uh, quite a a tete a tete with uh, 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 Don Drysdale, the Dodgers, and at Dodger Stadium, and in sixty four, uh, you know, and and did fancied himself, uh, you know, quite the qu- he uh, courted himself quite well, not only in, in World Series play, but um, consistent enough, right, to be uh, not only a solid contributor and an All Star in sixty three, but also maybe you can give us a little bit of ba- uh, sort of a sense of this. 
somewhat of a fan favorite too, right? I think you maybe hinted at sort of like maybe why, but maybe we can get a little a little deeper into that. Like why he just seemed to be that he he was attractive to a lot of fans, especially you know in that transitional period from sort of the old guard to the new guard. Um, he's just seemed likable and maybe perhaps, maybe I'll throw a word out there, accessible or relatable. Yeah, that, yeah. so that's, that's really important because the Yankees are like um, a button-down corporation. Uh, they're, like a, they're like a walnut uh, boardroom. You know? It's very button-down. Um, and, and, and the players themselves, didn't, they viewed the media as the enemy, um, of course, Mickey Mantle's a star, but he could look right through you or just turn his back to you and not uh, not even uh, acknowledge you if you were a reporter. But but Bowden talked to anybody, and, and 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 that was true with reporters and fans. And so I spoke to a bunch of fans who were Yankee fans in the early '60s, and they they would hang out outside of Yankee Stadium to try to get autographs. And and these are kids. Uh, and they said, you know, I always wanted Mickey, I wanted Mickey Mantle. I wanted Whitey Ford. I wanted their autographs. And, you know, once in a while they would stop and they might sign something, but they would never, le- they would never look at you, let alone talk to you. Bouton would not only sign, he would stop and have a conversation. And if you were there often enough, he knew who you were. He knew who your parents were. He would ask about them. He treated them. He treated fans as though they were friends. And so th- he ends up with a, um, with a, with a fan club, um, uh, two, two, uh, 11, 12 year old boys start this fan club, uh, that gets written up in the paper and, and, and gives him a lot of good press for a Yankee. It's just like, just not something a Yankee would do, right? You don't talk to kids, uh, you know, as weird as that sounds, that's not what Yankees did. I mean, Yankees, you know, um, they just didn't do those things. But Bouton did. Uh, uh, Fritz Peterson, who was a, he was he played for the Yankees a couple years later and later became Bouton's roommate, told me a, uh, an interesting story about how to understand the Yankees. He said that at the end of the season, um, the traveling secretary would give all, everybody on the team the names, address, names and addresses of everybody else on the team. Um, so you could keep in touch with them in the off season. And Whitey Ford pulled Fritz Peterson aside when he was a rookie, and he said to him, "You know, you're not allowed to send anybody a Christmas card until you've been here five years." And, and that was the Yankee way, right? So there was a very there's a strict hierarchy, and Bouton blew that right up. And, and Bouton didn't pay any attention to that. And as accessible as he was, that's how much he annoyed the old the old guard of the Yankees. They, they, they hated uh, seeing him, A, get the attention, and B, sort of court it a little bit. Um, not that he was an attention hog, but he just naturally drew people because he was, he was gregarious. He would talk. Um, some of the research that I did, um, looking at old newspapers and things like that, it's amazing how many of those stories are essentially just written by Bouton. Not that he wrote them, but the reporter would just go sit down next to Bouton and Bouton would explain what happened in the game. And this isn't, this is when Bouton wasn't even pitching that day. Uh, and you know, the good reporters didn't do that, but, but the, there's a lot of other ones. It's it's story after story. It's just a one Bouton quote after another Bouton quote. And that's, that is something you just don't see, or you just didn't see. And 
that's why people liked him, and that's also why the old guard of the Yankees hated him. In your research, would you would you characterize him as cerebral or just simply gregarious and and uh, people oriented? Uh, what is the sort of, I guess, the psyche, I guess, uh, of him relative not only to the team but just just in general? Because it's clear that he's got a personality. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's cerebral, although that was his reputation. His reputation uh, among other ball players was that he was always. Um, uh, walking around with a book, and he was a deep, deep thinker. Um, he may have been a deep thinker, but he wasn't cerebral the way we would think of a person being cerebral. Um, he, he was, he was just a very gregarious. He was, he was curious. Um, he wasn't afraid of too many things, and um, he. So he would take some chances in terms of interests and hobbies and things like that. That. Maybe the rest of the ball players were just wouldn't do because they thought you know a lot of ball players were just they're just scared um and and that's that's the thing that I found really interesting, both in doing the Allen book and this one is how scared most ball players were they just they were afraid of everything um they had a talent, and they were always afraid that they were going to wake up the next day and that talent would be gone. Uh, they, they, they were afraid to say anything cause they were afraid that if they did something could happen to them. This is, you know, except if you were a superstar, but for the rest of them, they, they, they lived in a sort of, I wouldn't say fear, but it was, it was a real hesitancy to say or do anything. Um, I just think they felt their, their lively, their livelihood was precarious and Bowden just wasn't like that at all. I mean, as I said before, Bowton thought all of this was just the most fun in the world. And it, to him, it was a roller coaster ride. And he was going to be in the front in the front car with his arms up, screaming his head off. <laughs> That's how he viewed playing in the major leagues, which is which was not at all like ninety nine percent of the other players viewed it. No, you know that's that's a that's exceedingly interesting because you hear that a lot uh, in the entertainment field, right? Especially comedians. Uh, when they're starting out and doing the stand-up thing, and and you just, you know, there's there's the fear, I guess, of uh, or anxiety of performing. But you know, there's there's a a, a group of folks who kind of you know will look back on their careers, especially if them it's successful, and go, you know what, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I was I n- dumb, naive, stupid, uh, uh, fearless, uh, had nothing to lose, and that you know, frankly, that kind of mindset uh, can actually set one up for. You know, uh, being impervious to lots of different sort of threats and challenges, or, or perceptions of maybe losing a talent or whatever, because you're 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 aligned with the with the activity. You're you're enjoying the process of of entertaining, or in Jim Bouton's case, playing. And and to your point earlier, right, the idea of of being a fan, if you will, first, maybe almost uh, it's almost sort of like boyhood uh, uh, rationale for being a ball player in the first place. It's almost like he didn't shake that. Even if as he ascended to the the top levels, playing in big you know World Series games, yeah, he was just a different character. I mean, you just didn't see a guy like that in a major league locker room, um, or if you did, you didn't see him for very long. And 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 I think, and you didn't see him at all on, on a team like the Yankees. Uh, you, you just never saw that. And and he was. He, he for many people he was a just a breath of fresh air in in what was a becoming seen as an increasingly stodgy game 
and and so I think I think it's not just him; it's the times. I think that the, he he came along at a time where maybe people were um, more willing to embrace that. Um, maybe they wouldn't have embraced that so much a decade earlier, but you know things are loosening up a little bit in the '60s, and baseball certainly wasn't, um, but Bouton was, and, and so maybe if you were a younger fan in the '60s and you looked at Major League Baseball, there wasn't a lot there that you could perhaps identify with, um, but Bouton you could identify with. You know, Bouton seemed to be a guy who had sort of a younger outlook mindset um as opposed to most of these guys who were coming off the farm and 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 really they just didn't have much to say they didn't have much perspective they played ball and that was it um and, and you know, again Bouton Bouton's a city kid Bouton's different um he's smart I mean I said you said he was cerebral he's not cerebral but he's smart he's very smart and, and you couldn't you couldn't fool him and I think, you know, that's that's what separated him um, from from everybody else. And I think that's why people liked him. They saw something. If you were younger, when you saw the Yankees, you saw a guy on the field that, you know, hey, I can relate to this guy. I like this guy. Uh, and I think that carried him a long way. And that I don't see another reason why he stuck with the Yankees as long as he did, because he struggled for a few years um, after those couple of good ones, where I think if he was not Jim Bouton, he would not have been there. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about that because see, he was he was arguably sort of something like a, a of a phenom, you know, in 63, 64. But in 65, it seemed to kind of go wobbly, I guess, I, I, perhaps, I, I guess, as was hinted in, in your book and, and some other things that I've read, they were using him a lot. I think he had more starts that year than anybody in the in 64 than anybody in, in Major League Baseball, obviously extended by some World Series and the playoff stuff. But, you know, 37 starts and, and it's a it's. Lesser uh, mortals would be shut down earlier than that these days. Yeah, if you look at he now there were guys who pitched who started as many games as he did. Um, you look at the number of starts pitchers had back then, and they started a lot of games. He started a lot of games, but he also had a delivery that just looked always looked painful. Um, it was not a smooth delivery. He didn't he he didn't look like uh, you know Carlton's a lefty, but he didn't look smooth like Steve Carlton looked. You know, he, he he looked like a guy who was going to hurt his arm, uh, and and he did hurt his arm. Um, he had this, like I said, he had a big overhand curve, and I don't see how you can watch a guy throw like that and not say to yourself, "This is a guy who's going to throw his arm out," um, which is what he did. It didn't take him long to throw his arm out either, because um, like I said, he he didn't throw that hard for very long. He he, he was not a uh, he was not a a, a, a a hard thrower throughout much of his high school career, and so and by his early twenties, he threw his arm out. So, you know, a few years where he could throw hard. Um, and I think the reason he threw his arm out is because of that delivery. Um, that just it it got it, it gave him more velocity than he otherwise would have had. It got him to the big leagues, but it, it, there's there's no way you can throw like that for, and have a long career. That's just this is just not going to happen. All right. Well, there there are a couple of things going on around that time, I, and one of which I kind of want to get into because this this leads into the, the the big supernova that that becomes Ball Four and, and the '69 Seattle Pilots. But who is this um, Leonard Schechter guy? Uh, who I guess by all accounts, uh, Bouton sort of became friendly with. I, I, I'm just 
it, it seems to me like that's sort of the uh, one of the key kernels here to uh, what leads up not only baseball wise but also uh, literary wise uh, to come. Uh, Schechter was a columnist for the New York Post, and he took a liking to Boughton right away. So probably people who listen to this, your podcast, I'm sure a fair amount of them know who the Chipmunks were, um, who were this um, group of reporters who were young, kind of, you know, if you're thinking of the literary sports writer equivalent of a Jim Boughton, it would be these guys, the Chipmunks, who were younger sports writers, mostly New York-based, New York and Philadelphia, really. Uh, and they 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 took a different approach to sports writing than the generation before them, which was um, a little more staid. Uh, and Leonard Schechter was really uh, Leonard Schechter and Stan Isaacs um, and Larry Merchant. I would say would be the three guys who were the on the vanguard of the Chipmunk um, Brigade. And they they wrote more about the players as personalities. They were interested in what they did on in, when the games were over. Um, they weren't so much interested in how many games you won and games and how many games you lost as if you were an interesting person, if you're an interesting character, if there were interesting stories that surrounded you. So Bowden was made for this. Um, he, he was really their guiding light. Uh, and Schechter uh, really noticed something in Bowden right off the bat. And um, uh, can, uh, can I curse on this podcast? Absolutely. No? We encourage it. Okay, well, that's good. So Bouton told me that when he first showed up, uh, in, when he makes the team in 62, um, a player pulled him aside and tried to tell him the, the facts of life and of playing baseball in New York and, and pointed out, you know, you got to be careful of the media and particularly this fucking Schechter. And he, he said more, Bouton told me more people pulled him aside and told him to watch out for fucking Schechter. Uh, and he said, I, after a while, I thought that must have been his first name, since that's all anybody referred to him as. <laughs> uh, and, and so he says, then he meets the guy, and he says he looks like a walrus. Um, he's got these big bug-eye glasses and a big big mustache and, um, you know, pudgy guy. And um, Bowton is like, this is the guy that everybody is afraid of? Mickey Mantle's afraid of this guy? <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford were running to the showers when, when fucking Schechter showed up, and you see fucking Schechter and he looks like somebody's uncle. And um so Schechter and Bouton hit it off right away and um became friendly. Schechter was the one who wrote about Bouton's fan club, all about all about Bouton with the two kids that I mentioned earlier who used to hang out outside of Yankee Stadium getting uh, autographs. And Schechter is the conduit between Bouton and the general public. Uh and he's you know just by watching Bouton, you could kind of get a sense of who he was, but it was really Schechter and Schechter's stories on Bouton that really let people see who Jim Bouton was as a person. Uh, and that is what really caused a lot, led to a, a lot of the connection that people had to him. Um, one interesting thing about Bouton that Schechter wrote about, which just blew me away, was when he was pitching, in Yankee Stadium, um, and if he had a bad outing and um, he got knocked out of the game early, he would um, go back into the clubhouse. He'd take a shower, he'd change, and then he'd go sit in the stands for the rest and watch the game, rest of the game from the stands. Um, so you would be watching the game, and, and you could very well have ordered a hot dog, and the guy passing you the hot dog is the guy who started the game an hour and a half earlier. 
Uh, and so it's stuff like that that really connected Boughton to the, to the Yankee fans. And Schechter is the guy who wrote about it. And Schechter is the guy who, who made Jim Boughton um, accessible, as accessible as he was through his columns. Uh, and so Schechter and Boughton became friendly. Um, on the plane, um, when the media, the, the sports writers would travel with the team, uh, after a while, Boughton decided he would rather sit with the, with the writers than his teammates, uh, and particularly Schechter. And so... Um, uh, he got he Bouton and Schechter became close, but as they became close, Bouton became more of an outsider to his teammates, who saw him as the enemy, just like they saw Schechter as the enemy. Um, and so, it Bouton's relationship with Schechter helped him, obviously, as it turned out, when it came to Ball Four, but it really hurt him with his teammates, who thought he was somewhat of a spy. Every time there was a story that mentioned something about one of the ball players. Um, they thought that that piece of information was being fed to them by Bouton. Um, it nor it usually wasn't, but, um, that's what they thought anyway. So this gets interesting. So I, I, what I really want to get into then is now the idea of, of a book, right. And the whens and where's of that sort of coming about, because uh, now I'm getting the sense that this could have contributed to, uh, to Bouton's being unprotected, uh, when the expansion draft came about for uh, the upcoming 1969 season. Do I have that right, or am I conflating events? Well, Bouton was traded um, before that. Um, oh, sorry. So he, 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 was, he, he got sent down um, to, um, to, the, to Syracuse uh, because he had struggled for a number of years. So, so he had 63 and 64 and then by 65, he was already a shot pitcher. And so you're looking 65, 66, 67. And by 68, um, it's his fourth season where he really, he really, he just, he just can't win consistently um, or, or even get on the mound consistently. Um, and sports writers outside of the chipmunks, I mean, the chipmunks had their own rivals, you know, the older guard. Um, and, and, and the sort of sports writers who were kind of really protectors of the Yankee flame who didn't like the chipmunks, uh, cause they thought that the chipmunks were piercing that they would always wonder, well, why is Bouton still around? Why, why is this guy still here? Um, and the reason he was there, I think was because he was, he, he was a personality and the, you know, the Yankees in the late sixties were terrible. And, um, Bouton was one of the few people that people would, would want to see, um, you know, Mickey Mantle had retired and, so Bouton is, is, you know, he's still, because he's being written about by Schechter and, and the other uh, George Vesey and, and other, right, Phil Pepe and Stan Isaacs and all these other columnists in New York, uh, he, he's a draw, but by 68, he, he's, he, that's not enough. And he, he gets sent down, he, comes, he, gets, he goes up and down a couple of times, and then eventually he gets traded to... The, um, the I think he gets traded officially to the Angels minor leagues system, but that team was in Seattle. It was a, it was a, I believe it was an Angels AAA club for in '68. But the whole idea was it was being populated to be the expansion to at least be a bunch of guys you could take to spring training in '69 as the expansion Seattle Pilots. Um, I that's that's how he ends up in. Seattle, not because they wanted him, by the way. I think that's an important point. 
Pilots didn't really want him either. Um, he's just a dude filling out a uniform that they could bring to um, Tempe, Arizona um, in 69 and be a body who can throw perhaps for a few weeks um, to somebody else. That's the only reason he ends up with Seattle. Okay, that's uh, especially interesting. So when does the book idea come into being? Was it, it seems like it was germinating before him ultimately getting a spot with the pilots come 69 post spring. Yeah, he had always, he had always, he had actually started writing pieces for um uh Sport magazine um a couple of years before that. He had written a couple of things. Um and it's interesting when you go through um you go through them and I was I, I was fortunate to speak with um Al Silverman who um was the uh I think he was the editor in chief of Sport back then. Uh, I think he's died since then, but um, I was lucky to talk to him about Boughton, and um, he told me that he was always a big fan of Boughton, and he thought that Boughton was a smart guy, and he encouraged Boughton to write. Uh, And so Boughton's first real piece is a piece in Sport Magazine in 67, 68, about him being sent down to the minors. And if you read that piece, it it is the... um, the grandfather of ball four. It is the same tone. It is the same, um, really, it takes you inside the locker room in the first sentence. Uh, and, and it really gives you a feel of what it's like to be told you're being sent down to Syracuse. Um, I think the, I think that piece begins with um, him, Bouton, talking about how you know you're not making the team when you see all the bags on the bus except for yours. And yours are still sitting in your locker. They never tell you that you're not going. Um, you're not going north with the team. You're you're sticking behind. Um, and so right away you see that's a different sort of a piece. Uh, and so he had always wanted to write something. He starts to write some stuff for sport. A couple of things. He wrote something on the Mexico City Olympics. Um, and his his mother had always told him he should write a book because he had so many interesting and funny stories. Every year he would come home and uh, tell his parents about them. And, but he, his idea was he was going to write a book after he became a star. And by 69, it's clear that's not happening. And he decides that, well, if I'm ever going to write this book, um, this seems to be my last shot in Seattle. And that's when he gets serious about it. Um, not because he's a star, but because he knows it's either now or never. Uh, and so that's when he really starts to take it seriously. And that's also coincidentally when Len Schechter approaches him um, and asks him if he wants to work together with with Schechter on a book, um, which, by the way, is a book that his publisher doesn't want, which is another interesting story, because you know when Schechter approaches Bouton, this is in the end of sixty after the sixty eighth season, Bouton's in the minor leagues at that point. Um, and so he's not Jim Bouton, the superstar New York Yankee. He's Jim Bouton, the minor leaguer um, out in Seattle, Northwest uh, uh, America, on a, who has, is an outside shot to even make the pilots. And even if he makes the pilots, who's going to see him? Uh, you know, this is not the uh, the template for a bestseller, uh, a ball player playing in the middle of nowhere, um, just writing uh, about his thoughts about you know, being at the end of the line. Um, his publisher, which was World Publishing, did not want this book. Um, they wanted Schechter, but they wanted Schechter to work with somebody else. 
Um, Schechter insisted on Boughton, however, because of his relationship with Boughton. Um, Schechter had written a book about a decade earlier. He'd written a book with Roger Maris, and um, it was a nightmare of a relationship. Maris was a pretty sour guy, and Maris and, and uh, Schechter just did not get along and actually stopped talking to each other halfway through the season. Um, Schechter did not want to do that again. So when, when World approached him to write another book, Schechter's response was no, but you know, if I'm going to do it, I would only do it with Jim Bouton, and which was World was not thrilled with, um, and it took a lot of convincing to get them on board with that idea. So when, when I mean, when does the book sort of come into play? I mean, is does he go into his pilot season now, having made the team, uh, with this in mind, or is it just is it just coincidental that the book idea was rattling around, and it just so happened to be he was in Seattle this, for for a bulk of the year, and and this was just the tableau upon which he was sort of going to do this book. Well, they 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 worked out a deal with World in the winter between '68 and '69, so they had a book deal, um, not a lucrative book deal, but they had a book deal. Um, and so, yes, going into spring training in '69, they did have they were they Schechter, Bouton, and World were all on board for this book, which. You know, truth be told, World uh, did not think that that book was ever even going to get written um, because they didn't think Bouton was going to either. Go, either he wasn't going to make the team, he wasn't going to stick, or even if he stuck, who would even care? Um, and, and so they, World was so convinced that this book was not going to go anywhere that they actually made a backup deal with Bill Freehand, who was a catcher for the um, Detroit Tigers. Um, and, um, that's the kind of guy they wanted in the first place. Um, so Bill Freehand wrote a book, uh, behind the mask, um, and world sign that was, that book was being, it's a long story, but he, he, it was, it was actually being published by, um, Dick Schaap's imprint, um, and world worked out a deal where they would distribute it because they wanted something to have on their spring 1970 list. They wanted a baseball book. Um, and they were not confident that Bouton's book was ever going to see the light of day. So that's how they ended up with the, they ended up with two, as it turned out, although they thought really they were only going to have the freehand book. Um, but they did walk, going back to your question, Bouton and Schechter did have a book deal going into 1969. Um, whether it was going to turn into anything, who knew, but they did have a book deal. All right. So my two branched questions now, uh, maybe in succession, uh, is take us through a little bit of the 69 season as Bouton sort of uh, expounds upon it, because it obviously doesn't last for the entire season because it's back down to the minors by the end of it. Uh, and then maybe we can get into 1970 when the book is finally uh, ready to go, published, and then the reaction to that. But I, I think it would be helpful for our audience, especially those youngins out there who've never read or have only peripherally heard of Ball Four, maybe to get a sense of what he's talking about in this book or what he's documenting, I guess, or, or journaling uh, as part of the process during the Seattle Pilots experiment. Because, you know, not only his career and his last chance, if you will, at, at the majors and all that kind of stuff and the ups and downs and all the sort of things are in his head about sort of baseball generally and and, and how to write about it. But look, there's, there's an adventure around the Pilots too, right? Uh, comical uh, and not so. Uh, the fact they only lasted a year is, uh, you know, legendary in baseball history. Right. So one of the things that Bouton stressed to me about this was that he did not think he could have written this book while he was with the Yankees, 
because it's a completely different atmosphere. Uh, he said the pilots were were so unique because he said, yes, he was at the end of the line, but everybody was at the end of the line. The only reason you would be in, you would be on the pilots is if you either had never made it or you were a falling star. Nobody there was on the way up. And, and so he said it was interesting because you have all these players with all these hard luck stories. Um, all of them have paths. Um, none of them are phenoms. And, and, and so you get all these players in one spot. And he said, you don't get that anywhere else. Um, all these players who are, they're all, they're all looking into the void in one respect or another, which is just something you don't see on the Yankees and you don't really see anywhere. You would only see it on a team like the pilots in 69, a team that exists only because everybody else has given them their rejects. And the players know they're rejects. And, and in a way, it's, it, you can have some sad stories, some heart-wrenching stories, but you also get a lot of really funny stories. You get a lot of players who really don't feel like they have as much to lose, perhaps, as maybe players who are on the Yankees. I mentioned earlier that a lot of ball players are scared, or they were scared. Um, not so much on the pilots. Um, because these guys had been through a lot. They knew that this was the end or near the end, and they were a little looser, and they were a little freer, um, and they were um, more – they were themselves. And so what, what Bouton would, would take it all down uh, and uh, document it, all the funny stories, the sad stories, the, the interesting stories, the hard-ass stories um, – particularly when you're being managed by an old-school, hard-ass guy like Joe Schultz who just has a tough time understanding what's going on outside the, the stadium gates in 1969. Um, it's a, all of it is like a, it's a, it's a cavalcade of contrasts and, 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 and misperceptions and, and, and failures, and, and, and you put it all together. If you have an eye, you need an eye for this too. Um, if you have an eye such that you can spot this and you can see it, um, it's a great book. Um, if all you see is just a bunch of guys who are going to be on a last place team, it, maybe it's boring. But that's not what Bounton saw. And that's not the book that ended up being written. Yeah, because some of this is uh, curious is how much of this is the pilots projecting upon baseball and how much of this is baseball generally projecting upon the situation that is the pilots, right? Because it's clear that, you know, that Schechter and he are talking about some kind of you know, a year in the life or season in the life of, of, of whatever, right? Uh, even before he's ensconced in the pilot's uh, uh, luminary uh, uh, lineup there, right? But it's also it also seems like it's somewhat, uh, I guess, convenient, too, because there seem to be some, some bigger themes and some bigger uh, observations that are not just uh, specific to the pilots that year, but to baseball generally beyond uh, the, the Pacific Northwest. Right, right. There's big themes in that book, um, and and there's there there's you have this insular world of baseball going up against this larger world where things are changing, and I a lot of the book plays off of that um, the the old ways versus the new ways, uh, baseball having trouble dealing with youth culture. Um, there's a lot in that book. There's a lot in Ball Four about the coaches getting on players because their hair's too long. Um, 
you know, you got to cut your hair. And but you know, you know, they they it, there's a couple of parts in the book where he talks about how, um, well, you know, if if you get three hits, you don't have to get a haircut. But if you're going to strike out, you better make sure you got a crew cut. Um, it's a lot of weird uh, psychology and and, and just a, approaches to the world that where you just see you just see how much you know. Bouton might be a fish out of water in baseball, but baseball's a fish out of water in America that period of time. I mean, baseball is a weird place in 1969. Um, if you look at it out compared to what's going on in the world. And I think one of the things that ball four does is it really sets, it really shows you that. Um, it shows you a lot of the, the pettiness, the vindictiveness, the, the baseball living in a world that just doesn't really exist anymore anywhere outside of baseball. Uh, and I think Bouton does a really good job of of getting that across. Um, he also gets a lot across about the, the vindictiveness of management directed towards players, um, which which will then become a big deal in the next few years in, in, in as the Players Association and Marvin Miller start to push against that structure. Um, you know, it, it, it was hard. It certainly is hard to see from 1969 that in a, just a few years the whole structure is going to be upended because it doesn't seem like it's going to be. But when you read Ball Four, you can see why that would happen uh, because you can see how management is taking advantage of players and how you know players are starting to push back a little bit, um, which is interesting because most ball players, you know, they're 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 pretty concert they're a pretty conservative type. Um, and yet they were pushed back against management unexpectedly, I think. Um, and I think that's, that's, if you, if you read it now, you can really see the line between ball four and free agency in major league baseball. You probably couldn't see that in 1970 when the book came out, but you can see it now. Well, it's also interesting too, because I mean, you're hinting at it, right? It's also, you know, you say baseball's in a weird place, right? The country is in a weird place, right? It's the, the tumultuous late sixties, right? You know, this is. A, a small microcosm, I guess, and of of just uh, a, a transitional uh, parts of life overall, not just baseball, right? Sports generally, and 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 culture and society, hair length, right? I mean, all of that is it's you could superimpose some of those issues into this story just as much as uh, you know the the ills of the the insular world of or the curiosities of the insular world of baseball. Yeah, you know, it, it's a funny. Yeah, I, I spoke to John Thorne uh, for the book, um, and he, he's the official historian for Major League Baseball. Sure, he made legend, a really legend in his own time, of course. Yeah, yeah, um, and he made a really great observation. He said one of the things that really makes Ball Four work is that you have um, Joe Schultz as the manager, who, in our mind as readers, we see Joe Schultz as embodying everything we thought baseball was like in the thirties and the forties. You know, we, you see Joe's as portrayed within ball four. Um, you, you could imagine Thorne says you could imagine Joe, Joe, Joe Schultz, you know, you know uh, drinking beer with the babe. And, and you put him in, in, in the same locker room with Jim Bowden, who is, as uh, another sports writer I spoke to, George Vesey, told me, Bouton is the 60s before the 60s knew they were the 60s. You put those two guys in the same locker room, you are not, you cannot help but have fireworks and, and a clash of culture that is explosive. And, and that's, that's a lot of what Bouton captured. 
And it's not just Bowden and Schultz, but it's it's a lot of old school rubbing up against change and, and, and how uncomfortable that is for both sides. And I think that's what that's what gives the book a lot of life. And I think even when you read it now, it still has life for that reason. Oh, it it still holds up. It certainly helps to know sort of the times and then the situations around it. But but it still holds up for sure, uh, even without that on, on a bunch of different levels. So let me ask you then, how does the how does the book come out? Right. So so Bouton's, you know, he he's basically sent down to the, the miners of. I guess the the Houston Astros. Uh, uh, well, he's traded the Astros, and then he goes down. I guess to another minor league uh, uh, team in the process, and uh, it's it seems like that you know he kind of maybe recognizes that this is probably you know kind of near the end of the line. Although he does come back in '70 a little bit, um, but but tell us about sort of the book coming out because that comes out what June of '70 or so, kind of almost in the beginning of the the, the third first third I guess of the baseball season. Yeah, so before the book comes out, there are excerpts in Look Magazine, and those come out uh, at the very end of May. And coincidentally, they come out while the Astros, we're battens with the Astros now, they come out while the Astros are in New York playing the Mets. And um, and it's just, Co- it's as if a, a coincidence, bo- or was that planned? I think it's a coincidence. Um, I don't, I, I, I think it's a coincidence. And now... Um, I should add that um, the sports editor of Look Magazine is none other than is none other than Len Schechter. So, so Schechter, you know, Schechter can is 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 really pulling the strings here in a lot of different ways. Um, the reason he he gets the excerpts in Look Magazine obviously is because um, a Schechter has the power to do that, um, but also because World refused to promote the book. Um, because they had a, a switch in editors, and the new editor didn't want to promote the book, he tried to bury it um, and move the release date off to November, where you know baseball books don't sell very well when they come out in November. Um, and so Schechter really took the reins and um, put the PR machine that that he could put into place. Um, that's how we got those excerpts into Look Magazine um, in late May, uh, and and that set off the firestorm. Um, you know, World was only going to publish, I think, 10,000 copies of that book, but Schechter did enough talking the book up to his friends who then put it in their columns um, and that there's uh, a kissing scene and then Mickey Mantle's drunk and all these sorts of things. Schechter picked the most salacious parts of the book and put those all in the excerpts and told all of his friends about it so they would put it in their columns so that when the book gets when the excerpts forget not the book the, when the excerpts get released in late may and if you read the excerpts it's every it's every you know greenies Mick, drunk mickey mantle um elston howard uh, scuffing the ball up for whitey ford you know all these sorts of things the uh, uh beaver shooting on the shore motel in washington all of that stuff is in the excerpt first excerpt and it's like a bomb explosion and when the once the bomb exploded, um, World, as much as it didn't want to publish the book, started upping its uh, print runs. And um, by the time the book comes out in June, um, people are dying to read it uh, because they've already they, they they've they've either read the excerpt or they've read their local sports writer either talking about how this is going to be the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world. And, and so, yeah, that it is the excerpt is what made Ball Four infamous. I would say if there were no excerpts, it probably wouldn't be as infamous. 
Um, but it's the, the choice of putting certain things in is that's what really got people's attention initially. Um, and then that's what made it, I think as hot uh, as a hot potato as it was. And it made Bowden a hot potato right off the bat. Um, he had to go in and see Bowie Kuhn who wanted him to, uh, renounce the whole thing and say that it was all a bunch of lies, which Bowden wouldn't do, which only helped sell the book even more, um, you know, Bowie Kuhn kind of reminds me of George Costanza from Seinfeld. You know, whatever whatever instincts he had, he should have done the opposite. Uh, every 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 step of the way, he did the wrong thing, and by doing the wrong thing for Bowie Kuhn, he he made best he made Ball Ford a a huge bestseller. Um, and as Bowden's always said that he 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 couldn't have made Ball Ford what it was without Bowie Kuhn, and, and he's right about that. So describe the dichotomy of the reaction, because obviously, you know, in the general public, uh, it was uh, an immediate uh, sensation, perhaps uh, through the, the PR efforts of Schechter, uh, uh, smartly uh, uh, revealing pieces of it. But he's also, though, quickly, if not abruptly, becomes uh, a persona non grata within the baseball family, right? Right. I thought it was really interesting when I was going through the reactions at the time of, to the book. And I had a lot of preconceptions as to what I thought the reactions would be. And I was wrong on every count. Um, What I found was that people's reactions to the book varied depending upon how much they, uh, how dependent they were on baseball. So sports writers, most sports writers trash the book. Outside of the chipmunks, the chipmunks loved it. Um, as I said, Bowden was their guiding light, and 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 Schechter, they all looked up to. Uh, so they they wrote about it very positively. But outside of the chipmunks, traditional sports writers, I'm talking Dick Young and uh, Jimmy Cannon, and 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 all of the other. Every city has their own, you know, local uh, legend. You know, traditional sports writer who's really has a close affiliation with the team. They hated it. And the reason they hated it, I really believe, is because they were touting themselves as the insiders to the to their readers. And they were they would always tout themselves as the person you needed to go to if you were a sports fan. You needed to go to them to be told what's going on in the locker room and what's going on here and what's going on there. What Bounton's book did was it showed readers that these guys weren't telling them everything that was going on. And I think he hurt their credibility, or at least they felt their credibility was being attacked. Because when you read Ball 4, you, you, you read a whole world, you read about a world that was taking place under the nose of your local sports writer who did not write one word about it. And I, I think that those sports writers felt they were scooped and they felt that they were deceived. And I think they were angry. Uh, and so they lashed out against Bounton. Ball players, again, who are part of the firmament of Major League Baseball, they viewed it as attacking Major League Baseball. And again, as I said before, most of these guys are scared. Um, they took it as an attack because it, they took it as an attack on their livelihood. Um, they also didn't like the fact that he told locker room stories about some of them because they knew that they were going to have to go home and answer to their wives. And so, yes, they may not have shown up in ball four, 
But they knew that after Ball 4 came out, they were going to have to go home and explain to their wife, well, yeah, that may have been what happened to this guy, but I didn't do any of those things. And they knew that there was that's a tough conversation that they're going to have to have. And most of them knew that they probably weren't going to be able to get away with it. Um, so I think that's why ballplayers didn't like it. But if you got away from that and you look at the larger literary world, um, general reviews like in the New York Times book review and the Washington Post, people who are reviewing it who are not sports writers, they loved it. They loved it because it was a real insider's look at Major League Baseball and the life of a Major League Baseball player and, 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 and a, a peek inside the locker room, a real peek inside the locker room. Not the curated look that you got from Dick Young or for your local from your local sports writer. They love the book, um, and I think most fans love the book because they wanted they want to know the inside story. They assumed they were getting the inside story, and then when Ball Four comes out, they realized they weren't getting the inside story. But here's the inside story. So it was a real split. Um, the closer you were to Major League Baseball, the more you disliked it. But the the further you, away you got. Um, you appreciated it because a it was wonderfully written, and b it's funny, it's raunchy, it's it's insightful, it makes you cry, it makes you laugh, it's everything you want from a book, and, and that's why the response was so positive by people who didn't feel like they were being attacked by the mere fact of the book being released. Yeah, it's interesting. It almost feels like um, on the sports writer front, you, you mentioned Dick Young. It seems like he was well, on a lot of different fronts, always leading the way of curmudgeonliness uh, or, or you know irascibility and uh, you know old guard. It almost feels like this was sort of the uh, the final nail, I guess, in the the coffin of the of the new of the old guard, I guess, of sports writers. And this is almost sort of the uh, the confirmation, I guess, of the new guard and the sort of the the journalism of of you know the times, if you will, right? A more straightforward and personality based and uh you know beyond the veneer i guess of you know the old ways of of covering uh, not only baseball but sports generally but i i also get the sense too that that there was a, there were a number of players that sort of stood out i guess as being especially irritated i know pete rose had a colorful quote or two about uh <laughs> about uh i'll let you tell it but uh but also to mickey mantle right uh, you know there there are a couple of uh Parts of the book that are, are you know, uh, especially harsh about uh, about Mantle, and, and maybe you know, uh, we could argue as to you know whether that should have been said or not. But you know, uh, you know, you, this was a, a quote unquote hero of, of Yankee lore, and um, it, it seems like that that relationship was, I guess, for years afterwards, uh, I guess, strained is is too light a word for it between uh, Bouton and Mantle. Yeah, Mantle. Mantle was a legend because he was written about as a legend. I mean, he was a great hitter. He was a great player. Uh, no question. He's he's one of the all-time greats. But he was a drunk and he was a jerk. And, and um, pretty much every player I spoke to um, who who played with uh, Mantle um, in the 60s said that he, he wasn't always a, a drunk and he wasn't always a jerk, but he could be. Um, he could be very, he could be a very good teammate. He could, he could be, um, you know, a friendly guy when he wanted to be, but then he would go into Mickey Mantle mode and he would, 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 could be a nasty guy. And, um, 
if you're going to write about Mickey Mantle, what are you going to write? I mean, I think that the the you know, the the accepted approach is that you just you 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 know, you, you take the hero as as he's portrayed, and you don't you don't try to pop that bubble. But Bouton didn't see him. Bouton actually liked Mantle. Um, because as I said, you know, he wasn't always a jerk and he wasn't always drunk. He was, you know, he, he, he could be a great teammate. Even Bowden said that, but you know, he saw a lot of times where Mantle could just be nasty. Um, and, um, and so he thought that was important too. And, you know, it's, I guess if you need your heroes, you don't like that. Um, but, as Bouton said to me, well, I thought it made Mantle more interesting. I didn't think he was very interesting as the cartoon character he was portrayed as being. I thought he was more interesting as a human being with flaws like everybody else. I mean, now we know Mickey Mantle had a tough childhood. Um, uh, he had an abusive father. Um, and so did he, you know, there was, maybe there's a reason why he drank, you know? Um, and maybe there's a reason why he could be so nasty. Um, and maybe it's, better to understand those things to understand who he is rather than build him up as a cartoon character where he just doesn't seem relatable and human. This goes back to the first thing I was saying in the beginning where you could you could watch Mickey Mantle play in the early 60s and the 50s, but you couldn't relate to him. Um, after Ball 4, you could relate to him and particularly after other books that came out subsequently. You know, Once Ball 4 broke the dam and people were writing about players, particularly players like Mantle, more honestly, um, you know, if you read Jane Levy's book on Mantle, which is terrific, um, you start to understand more about Mickey Mantle. I mean, you might not like him, but you understand him. And and I think, to me at least as a baseball fan, I appreciate that more than just this cartoon character that I, it doesn't, I can't relate to a, a cartoon character. Well, you know, and I think it's it's lost on on the current generation, right? That um, these kids today, right? Uh, uh, besides <laughs> staying, staying off my lawn, uh, the the idea though is that you know this book was a watershed uh, in in call it sports journalism or or memoir or whatever. It's not just frankly about you know changing how baseball sort of gets looked upon and and understood and 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 uh, and described, right? But but just sports sports writing. Generally, and, and maybe, frankly, just uh, almost uh, uh, genre neutral, if you will, beyond just sports about how I won't call it tell alls, but it certainly did change the nature of what, uh, you know, about reporting and, and, and memoirs, I guess, just generally. I think people get sort of uh, don't sort of recognize just how uh, powerful and impactful this book was and its legacy beyond just, uh, you know, a year in the life of a baseball player. Yeah, it wasn't the first tell-all either. That's the other thing that people don't realize that this was this this was a form of a book before Jim Bouton wrote Ball Four. There, this sort of a book kind of started with Jim Brosnan in the early '60s, where he took he wrote a diary, and you know he it was that book's a good book. That book I, I, that book holds up too. Um, it's a it's an interesting book to read, but you know Jim Brosnan's kind of a straight up guy. You know, I think he would drink a martini every once in a while and smoke a cigar. But you, you, you kind of learn more than you thought you knew about the players. And then there was this um, uh, instant replay about the the Jerry Kramer and the Green Bay Packers, and that was another diary form. And that was a big seller, and that's that's how this type of book really became popular. 
and why World Publishing wanted a book, um, another baseball book, because these types of books were becoming popular. But there was a limit to what was revealed in these books. And it wasn't until Ball Four where the books really got real. Uh, you learn some things in instant replay and you learn some, you learned a few things in even Bill Freehand's book you did. You learned, you know, that Danny McLean was kind of a jerk and liked to fly his plane and didn't really care about his teammates. But you didn't really learn really what it was like to be a Major League Baseball player, all the warts and everything, until you read Ball Four. And that's what makes it groundbreaking. And then after Ball Four, there was just a ton of these books. Um, most of them were not very good. Uh, but there was just this idea that now we have to tell everything, which is so amazing that before Ball Four, it was we don't want to tell anything. And within a year, it was, well, you have to tell everything. And if you're not going to tell everything, then we don't want to know about it. And that's why a lot of the books that came out after Ball Four, they didn't really make much of an impact because they were just, they were tawdry um, without being interesting. Um, I read one review, which I thought was funny. Um, Bo Belinsky, who pitched in the 60s and was known as a ladies' man and things like that. And he writes, a, you know, after, as I said, after Ball Four, these books just, they just pop up like, like uh, dandelions. And um, Belinsky's book is called, I think, Pitching and Wooing. And it's all about him, you know, with one starlet after another. And the review that I read said, you know, after reading Ball Four, um, I didn't realize how interesting baseball could be. But after reading um, uh, Pitching and Wooing, I didn't realize how boring sex could be. <laughs> so, you know, that shows you, that you know, you gotta, you have to have a talent for this. It's not just, you know, here's like Chico Escuela, you know, here's bad things about the Mets. You know, you need more than that. And um, very few books have been able to really duplicate that or at least approach that, um, although a lot of them have tried and there's just been no end of them. End well, yeah, them. It's stuff like uh, Dave Megacy's uh, book, Out out of Their League, you know, on the, the football side of things, right? The, the St. Louis Cardinals, and that was sort of a, in that sort of vein and around the same time as well. Somebody, frankly, we've reached out to uh, to kind of sort of get into that, too, because the St. Louis Cardinals and 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 pro football and and all those sort of sort of things. So, but but it does speak to again sort of the genre. Excuse me, the genre bending, if you will, or redefining. So let me as let's let's round third base here because we could go way deeper into sort of the post, you know, uh, about and career and all that stuff afterwards. I but I just I, there are two questions before we one question before we sort of get to that as sort of as the as sort of maybe our slide into home plate, if you will, to completely strain the analogy. Uh, <laughs> What was Boughton's reaction himself to all of this? Was he amused? Was he bemused? Was he expecting this? Was it more than he expected? And then, frankly, how did he, you know, it's interesting. It seems like he almost, um, uh, I don't know, I, I want to say predestined, but opportunistically rode that wave for the rest of the 70s career-wise, both, you know, back in baseball a couple of different times, but also, frankly, successfully and notably outside of baseball. Right. This was almost a career changer for him in many respects. And, and I guess financially to the upside, too. Yeah. If you think just to know, to, to think about how different the times were, uh, once Ball Four came out, um, he he was making more money as a writer than he would than he was making as a ball player. Now, that's not going to happen today. Um, but, uh, you know, that book sold so well uh, that. Um, you know, he he could afford to leave baseball because he was making more money not playing baseball. 
Uh, and, and so, yeah, that really, it's a, it's a life changer for him. Um, he was always, as I said in the beginning, you know, I was drawn to iconoclast and he was always an iconoclast, but then he became a professional iconoclast <laughs> once that book came out. Um, that's who, that was your go-to guy. You know, if you wanted to get, um, you know, the, the, the word of the iconoclast, you went to Jim Bouton and, um, yeah, he, that's how he ended up becoming a sports reporter, uh, first on, uh, for WABC and then WCBS, um, and um, he, he he just was a unique individual. He was always a unique individual, but then, as you say, he, he rode that, um, and he just was he was just different as a profession. I think that's 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 the best thing you could say um, as a sportscaster as well. That he just was different. Um, I spoke to Keith Olbermann uh, about about. Um, Bouton as a sportscaster, and Oberman told me that he he modeled his sports centers of the 90s after Jim Bouton's sportscasts of the 70s on Channel 7 and Channel 2. And he said, yeah, I've been ripping off Jim Bouton since, um, so, you know, ever since I started doing SportsCenter, because Bouton was a guy, he would get up there, he wouldn't read the scores, and he would kind of, he could be funny, but he could also veer from the 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 nitty gritty of the score bo- score box, um, the scoreboard. Sorry, and, and talk about something else beyond maybe the four corners of, of professional sports. And, and that's really what SportsCenter became under um, you know with Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman. Um, Oberman grew up in New York watching Bowden, By the way, um, that's how he saw him. Uh, and, and so that's you, when you say that he became, you know, he rode this into the seventies. Yeah, he did. Um, he. He's always a guy who was kind of felt he was untethered, but once Ball Four came out, he was really untethered. Uh, and um, yeah, people wanted him because he was untethered to convention. Um, he would he'd piss a lot of people off on the way, along the way. Um, you know, people who demanded things to be done a certain way. But then there were always people who liked the fact that that's not what he was, and wanted somebody who was different. Uh, and that's that's you know that's and that's where he fit. Um, you asked about um, what he thought the reaction of the book was going to be. Uh, he 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 told me that he didn't think the reaction was going to be like it was. Although I spoke to people um, who were covering the team in Seattle, who said that he spoke to them in '69 and said, "Yeah, this book is going to be explosive." Um, so it's hard to tell, you know, what, you know, he may have thought that sometimes, but not other times. Um, he knew he had something different and Schechter knew that they had something different. And by the way, world knew they had something different because even though the editor didn't like the book, he certainly didn't pull it either. Um, he published it, you know, he, much as he wanted to bury it, he, once the excerpts came out, you know, the world knew this was a book that was going to sell some copies. And, And so, um, yeah, it was a. It, I, I think I think Bouton knew that it was going to shake things up. I don't think anybody could have anticipated it would shake things up as much as it did. Um, but I don't think that Bouton would have ever written a book that wouldn't shake things up a little bit. I think that's just who he is or who he was. Um, so that's that's uh, that's what he was looking to do, and uh, I think he exceeded well beyond his own expectations. So describe to me then sort of, I guess, uh, the rest of his uh, his career, because 
you know, there were a couple of attempts. Actually, uh, played with the Portland Mavericks, right? Uh, in the uh, that uh, documentary, the battered base. Uh, 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 I can't remember the name of it, but the battered bastards of baseball. There you go, by Kurt Russell's uh, and and his dad and, and uh, stuff, and that got him a, another cup of coffee up up uh, in the in the majors and the, the Atlanta Braves and and. But, but it, it seemed to me, it seems to me that uh, the rest of his quote unquote career, right, uh, was, you know, uh, uh, warmly embracing yet distancing himself from this game of baseball, right? Almost seems like a love hate kind of relationship, right? Where, you know, it, it was almost like a, a playful sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, engagement, I guess, with with this sport that was, I guess, so good and so uh, you know, uh, not so good, I guess, on certain fronts uh, to him over the years. He almost became, I guess, to your point, you know, almost uh, he sort of uh, became, you know, almost sort of a, a professional vanguard, if you will, uh, to the extent that that's a that's a that's a career. Yeah, he he um, he always loved baseball. And he, he, he when he left the he got sent down by the Astros in the summer of 70 and then he and then he 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 quit but interestingly he kept playing baseball he played amateur baseball semi pro baseball almost immediately after he quit playing um uh for the Astros in, in 1970 he always loved baseball he played baseball up through um the early part of the 2010s um he was always playing um, one type of baseball. He played vintage baseball um, uh, in the you know the last fifteen twenty years of his life. Um, had a vintage baseball league, but before that, he was in a hardball league um, or a ver- number of hardball leagues. Um, he just loved baseball. Uh, he just loved to play. He loved to be on the mound, and so he had. He, yeah, he. I don't think he he didn't like the business of baseball. He, he loathed the business of baseball, but he loved the game itself. And so he, unlike a lot of people, I think, where maybe the, dis, the distaste of the business sours the, the entire experience, he was able to separate the two. Um, as much as he disliked the business of baseball, that didn't prevent him from enjoying the game itself. And that's there's no other reason why he would still be playing um you know, semi-pro amateur baseball in his 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, you know, you don't do that unless you love it. And um, he just, he just, he he just loved it. And, and you know, up up until the end of his life, when until he got too sick to do it, he would go out in his backyard and he would throw. He he built himself a big. He lived up in the Berkshires, up in uh, the mountains, and um, he built his own big brick wall in the back of his big yard he had and he would go out there with a bucket of balls and a glove and I'm telling you this glove and these spikes I I got to believe those were those are what he used when he pitched for the Yankees they were pretty beat up um he would go out there and he would throw against this wall for you know work up a sweat um throw knuckle balls or fast balls whatever he could throw he just he just loved to go out there and throw the ball I mean, that's to me that was amazing, you know. See this guy go out there um, and just just because he loved to do it um, and work himself up, you know. He put on the spikes, um, put the glove on, take a bucket of balls, and just throw until uh, until he was exhausted. I also didn't know he was the um, the creator of uh, Big League Chew, which was uh, sort of a staple in my uh, 
childhood, you know, with bubblegum and it's it's a sort of shredded. That's a he was um, he's a he's a character. I was a bit of a Renaissance kind of guy too, if you really think about it. Uh, but I, I guess the the real sort of question I would guess uh, is well, two questions. Number one, do you think Pete Rose ever forgave him? Uh, and Pete, if you're listening. <laughs> I want to know if you said that quote, and I'm not going to repeat it here, but uh, you could you could read the book uh, that that Mitch has put together, and you'll see there's a there's, there's a whole chapter devoted to that and headlined at that. Um, but uh, what do you think uh, Bouton's legacy uh, was? Because beyond all of that sort of drama and that sort of uh, explosive writing, and and it just seems like in the sort of the chewy center of of Jim's life, right? is perhaps sort of this enduring love, uh, mystical and uh, estranged sometimes as it might have been, with uh, this sport of baseball. And and if there's any sort of theme or fabric, it, it certainly is that. That certainly ties it all together. But but I think in his later years, I think he just kind of became uh, sort of regarded as sort of this, um, I want to say mythical, but certainly this sort of revered uh, character and, and maybe representative kind of persona uh, about uh, sports and, and and culture and it almost like he sort of a and I think he neatly and, and comfortably fit that uh, like a like a worn baseball glove ironically I think that Big League Chew is interesting to me because it does sum up what his legacy is everything he did was a means to connect people with the experience of playing or being a big league ball player. Big league chew is that is exactly like ball four because big league, what big league chew is, is, is it's bubble gum in a pouch that makes you feel like a big league ball player because you're not going to chew the other stuff, right? You know, the chewing tobacco is terrible for you, but you can, you can put a lot of that bubble gum in your cheek and feel like a big league ball player. And, you know, in that way, it's like ball four. It's 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 a, it's the sugar equivalent of ball four because that's what ball four was. Ball four was a book which you could pick up and you could just you know for the for the for the, the days that you sat there and read it, you would really feel like oh this is what it's like or this is as close as I'm getting uh, to to a big league clubhouse, and that's the theme for me that runs through pretty much everything that he did baseball related. Everything was a way to connect people to the game that he loved. And so, yeah, you know, he could piss people off. I don't want to minimize that. I mean, in my book, I do talk about that in the book. Um, and he, you know, he, he was very, um, uh, he had a very specific outlook. And if you didn't share that outlook, um, it could be tough, but, um, I, there was a purity of his outlook that um, I think um, rubbed some people the wrong way, um, and that could make for a difficult experience. But um, um, but I do think that the theme that ties him all together, um, at least baseball wise, is that con- trying to make that connection between something that he loved and experienced, and something that he thinks he's trying to get other people to feel it, if just a little bit. Well, look, this uh, I, I, now I'll give you a second here to promote. But uh, th- this book is uh, meticulously researched. Uh, you, you, clearly, the, uh, the the legal scholar in you uh, comes comes through. But but to you know to solidify uh, you know all the information that's in here, and it reads exceedingly uh, well. And it's just 
it's a fun read, and, and I I think it really does sort of obviously it's a compliment, right? To the if you're going to read Ball Four and and the, the sequel that came out afterwards and and the, his revisions uh, thereafter, this is absolutely the compliment uh, to it because you, you get a sense of you know him as a person, right? Which was a before, a during, and certainly after. Uh, that book, right? So I think a lot of people kind of just say, oh, Jim Bouton in Ball 4, it's terrific. But, you know, to understand sort of the fuller picture, I think you'll even appreciate uh, Ball 4, which, again, as I said earlier, still holds up, albeit through a modern lens. Um, you would do worse than to to read uh, Bouton, The Life of a Baseball Original by our, our guest Mitch Nathanson. What, what are you uh, doing to promote, obviously harder to do uh, in, this, in our current times, but... Um, and maybe what other works uh, do you have in in mind uh, beyond this now that you've sort of covered two iconoclasts in in Dick Allen and Jim Bouton? Yeah, I got to find another iconoclast, right? <laughs> I got to I got to see. I mean, well, Space um, Man Lee is pretty much I think uh, done. Uh, has been written about. Uh, I don't know. There's probably films <laughs> out there. Yeah, you got you got Kurt Flood and Space Man Lee. I think those are the two biggies, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have to think about what I got to do next. I mean, the thing that um, uh, I'm focused on now is just uh, trying to um, figure out a way to um, to get the word out about this book because everything kind of got blown up um, based on what's happened recently. Which, of course, in the grand scheme of things, this is you know this is nothing. So you know, don't don't, don't cry a tear for me, but but. Um, but yeah, you know, there was a there was a whole marketing plan that kind of went out the window. So um, hopefully, people will uh, find it and 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 read it and uh, enjoy it. Um, hopefully, that's my my fingers are crossed. I mean, uh, if we have more free time, um, hopefully somebody will people will start reading and or continue to read and be interested in both Ball Four and the story about the person who wrote Ball Four and how it all got put together. Are many thanks to Mitch Nathanson, a fascinating conversation about a fascinating baseball figure. For sure, the book is called Bouton, The Life of a Baseball Original. It is uh, published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, you can, of course, get a copy of it wherever fine books are found. Of course, you can find a uh, link to it uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode, number 161 with Mitch Nathanson, and you will find a convenient link that will take you to Amazon. You will get it uh, delivered to you uh, at your door relatively quickly. Uh, buy it at your independent bookstore, perhaps. That's another great way to support your community as well as supporting Mitch with the, uh, with the book, especially since he's uh, frankly unable to kind of get out there and promote it in person. Uh, given the times that we're living in. So, um, but do yourself a favor. This is a a, a really well-written book and uh, surprising and 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 fun to read. And uh, I learned a lot about uh, a, a character, frankly, that I thought I knew a lot about, but I clearly didn't know uh, as much. Uh, now that I have read the book, I, I feel like I'm uh, close to being a, an expert on the life of, of Jim Bouton. And uh, it will allow me, frankly, to uh, reread ball four with a little bit more incisiveness for sure if you want to follow mitch and his work and the promotion for this book and all the other stuff that he does uh you can follow him on his website at mitchellnathanson.com that's mitchell m-i-t-c-h-e-l-l nathanson n-a-t-h-a-n-s-o-n mitchellnathanson.com uh you can also follow him on twitter at 
Mitch Nathanson, M-I-T-C-H-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-O-N, at Mitch Nathanson. Of course, if you want to follow us, well, God, God forbid you you check us out on, and bookmark our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. You can follow us on social media, of course. Uh, on Twitter, we're at GoodSeatsStill. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. Uh, on Facebook, you'll find a page devoted to us, too, by golly. Uh, you want to send us some email, you can do that, too. We're at hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. And, of course, on the website, you can sign up for... Just find the link there, our little weekly newsletter that we'd like to send out every uh, weekend to kind of give our uh, our most loyal listeners a bit of a heads up of what we're going to be talking about each week, uh, a little bit uh, earlier than sort of the average Joe out there uh, waiting for the RSS feed to uh, ping their podcast catcher and, and get the episode that way. Uh, however you uh, connect with us, we, uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we also, of course, appreciate our good buddy, Jerry Payne, Payne Audio Excellence, uh, for uh, his uh, technical gymnastics this week, as he does each and every week, and has been doing for every single one of our stinking episodes. I, uh, I can't believe uh, he's lasted with us for this long. He is, uh, hasn't run away screaming, uh, but uh, he's hunkered down there in his homestead in, uh, in suburban Atlanta, and we appreciate him doing everything he can to uh, get our show out there in the uh, ether uh, and hopefully, again, offering a little bit of distraction, a little bit of frivolity, in the dark times that uh, we find ourselves in. We, again, thank you for all your support. Uh, We thank you for listening. And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, we're going to leave you with something, of course. Uh, Couldn't find a really, like, big song. But you heard us uh, talk, uh, Mitch and I, in this uh, earlier conversation about uh, some of the things that Jim Bouton did uh, during his, uh, I guess, his post or his ancillary baseball career. And one of those things... Uh, as you heard there, was, yes, a very briefly lived primetime television show, a sitcom at that. And it was called Ball Four, of course. And it starred Jim Bouton as his character was called Jim Barton. Yeah, really uh, a real stretch there. But uh, for five episodes, yes, count them, on CBS uh, in 1976. It was on the uh, 1976 fall season schedule. But it only lasted five episodes. Uh, here is the theme song. Yes, the theme song. The opening credits to the short-lived television show, Ball Four. And uh, until next week, take care, everybody. Dear Lenny, today we held batting practice in a hotel room. The bill came to $482. Well, you just might wonder why I'm playing games with people my age are mostly settling down. To understand it's not the same as being in the stage or simply running around. There's a boy in me who comes alive each summer. Won't you come play ball with me? Let's have fun. We're not keeping score. Laugh a little, cry a little, laugh me. That's fun playing ball.